Amen. So Ephesians 6.2 begins, Honor your father and mother. Honor, what does that mean? It can be defined as an inward esteem that is outwardly expressed. So because of how you feel inwardly, that's the why. But then how you actually act it out is how it's manifested or how it's expressed. So the outward manifestation for myself to honor my father is easy because myself and his family highly esteem him inwardly. So for today's message at the beginning, I'd like to speak of his legacy in three areas. Uh, the first one is on what he had done to instill a work ethic. My dad took over the family farm at the age of 19. So his father uh, had died at that time unexpectedly of a heart attack. And I'm not sure that my dad was completely ready to take on that responsibility, uh, but he was given it. It was God's providence that that would be the time for him. So he went after it. He, he learned. He worked hard. Uh, he had an uncle, Uncle Mark, that lived nearby that would, would help at times and kind of show him the ropes around the farm. And from the support from others and from his own work, he was able to figure it out. He faced those challenges. And then throughout his time on the farm, he was never uh, complacent. He was always looking for challenges and different things to pursue. So it was a, a farm at the time with, with fields and dairy, and it wasn't long before he changed it and sold the cows and turned it to a pullet farm, so a, a chicken farm. Uh, so at the time when the operation was running with both houses, he'd have about 220,000 chickens at a time. So this was a gentleman at, at 19 that he took on something he probably wasn't completely ready for and then continued to learn and grow and just work hard. One of the challenges that my dad had in fighting cancer is that he enjoyed work, and cancer slowed down his ability to work. So towards the end of his time with his battle, uh, one time he commented to my mom that, I don't know if I'll ever be able to work again. And that was just, uh, that was heartbreaking. God created us with an inward desire to work. Work is a good thing. It was not a consequence of the fall. It existed before the fall. Adam was told to, to tend the garden. But work changed with the fall, making it full of thorns and thistles. The book of Proverbs includes many principles for work, including Proverbs 21.5. It says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Proverbs 6.9 says, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? I think of my dad working sometimes through the night on the farm. I think about him getting up early and working because at times with harvest and times with that type of work, there's a, only a limited time, amount of time to get things done and you got, you got to strike when it's time to, to do it. Applying this to ourselves, are we willing to make sacrifices to be diligent in our labors as well as to be diligent in our lives with what is important? So are you willing to sacrifice ease, sleep, entertainment, to do things that are meaningful? Have you figured out what is meaningful? The farm has been in the Kramer family for over a century. So there's a sign up at the homestead that says uh, a century farm. Ecclesiastes 2.18 includes, All the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So this passage is talking about the futility of labor. That what you ever, ever you have here is, is gone and it's given to the, 
the stewardship of someone else. The farm operations were left in good hands when my dad took it over, when uh, his grand or when his father had passed away. It's now been left in good hands with my brother Kyle. My dad had invested into Kyle, and Kyle has been a ready student. He's well trained, and he's been ready for the responsibility. Colossians 3.23 says, But whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men. I think about how the Apostle Paul diligently disciplined others for the work of ministry. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he talks about how he would train others for the purpose that they could train others. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, we read that the gifted leaders in the local church are to equip the believers in the local church, and the equipped believers are to do the work of ministry. Accomplishing this work leads to the building up of the body of Christ. The work of ministry belongs to the church, and every member is called to be an active part of the ministry of the church. So are we ready learners? Are we becoming more equipped in our ability to serve the body of Christ? Be thankful for what you have. Be diligent in your work. Don't complain about what you don't have, including any physical talents or lack of resources, especially when looking in comparison to others, which how quick we may be. Being discontent in this area is sin. It is ultimately not trusting God's sovereignty and that he has made you as you are and for a purpose. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Trust in the Lord. The next area of his legacy is on priorities and relationships. People with a work ethic like my dad are prone to have their life centered around their work. So even though our schedule is often dictated by the responsibilities of the farm, I believe that what my dad truly cherished was relationships that were built through harmony, selflessness, and memorable experiences. I believe my dad knew that I would be inclined to have a disposition towards a, a work centered in balance or an incorrect prioritization in my own life. Uh, he would at times ask me, uh, his question was, have you become a company man? So this was not a subtle question. This was a direct affront on if, am I pursuing career success over what's really important in life and what priorities in life are? How do you really define yourself? Is your identity becoming your work? There was a period of time that uh, I was very me-focused, and that's why he would be asking those questions. But I would be oblivious to what was going on outside of my world. Dad would send me texts, remind me of important dates, or if there was something significant going on. He would always be there in the background to help me stay connected in my relationships. My parents intentionally prioritized relationships, and they intentionally made a very strong effort to avoid relationship strain. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Let me repeat the end of that again. But only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. A similar passage, Proverbs 25.11, says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. A wise word spoken at the right time, in the right way, with the right heart. Help to make sure that small things, small disagreements, small understandings, never became big things. If 
think of, there's a difference between if, if somebody sins against you, which is ultimately sinning against God, and we are called to forgive, versus if somebody has an idiosyncrasy or something that just uh, maybe quick to irritate you or get under your skin, but it's not sin, Scripture calls us to forbear. So a big difference between forgiving and forbearing. It would be me-centered versus uh, looking outside to others. Words are powerful. They can be used to inflict harm and crush a person, but they can also be used to heal and encourage. Proverbs 12:18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15:4 says, A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Sustaining and growing relationships requires spending time together. You see this with Jesus. He was always with his disciples. At the end of his ministry, when he knew that the cross was coming, he, he took time away just to be secluded and spend time with those that he was, he was training for what would happen after him. My dad would do many things to nurture relationships, including making it a priority to spend time with others, whether it was going to the VFW, hospitality, as everyone knew that they could stop by at any time and be welcomed, and a, a time that seems so foreign to what we live in now, that you just pack up the family and go for a drive and just see who's home and just start stopping at their house and spending some, some time together to, to stay up and stay current and just enjoy one another's company and know how you can be there for others in their lives. My dad modeled being selfless. It was not the me first world that I was living in for quite a while, but instead he was outward looking. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. My dad sought to help others wherever he could, whether it was fixing something, uh, providing a hand with work, providing equipment, providing resources that he had that somebody else could use. He was quick to allow people to use it and uh, quick to be there to lend a hand. Uh, It was also shown with my parents. They moved in with uh, my dad's mom when she was, uh, uh, I'll say, towards the end of her life, but for several years to make sure that she was taken care of. So when I grew up, I grew up in... In the homestead, the original homestead with, uh, with my grandmother, and uh, we helped take care of her. Love is demonstrated in action. The ultimate sacrificial love is known as agape love. The greatest example of agape love is demonstrated on the cross of Calvary when Jesus gave his life as a substitute for sinners. About two years ago, I was standing in Israel near Golgotha, so the place where Jesus was crucified. My Bible teacher said, you can't understand Golgotha without understanding Gethsemane. So what is Gethsemane? In Luke twenty-two forty-four, when Jesus is speaking in Gethsemane, he says, and being in agony, or Luke twenty-two forty-four says, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down upon the ground. So why? Why was Jesus in such agony that he was sweating blood. He was not in a level of distress because of his awareness of the upcoming physical pain he was going to endure. He's not the only man that has died on a cross. There's been hundreds that have been crucified on a cross. We see martyrs that go to their death and they're, they're singing, they're praying, they're rejoicing, even as they're just given the power as that physical pain goes through them. I believe that Jesus sweat blood because he knew that a time was near in which his relationship with his father was going to be fractured in some way that is hard to comprehend, 
as the God-man who knew no sin was about to become sin on our behalf. And he was going to suffer the wrath that God had for sin as the wrath was poured out on him from the Father. So what is the exhortation? Four things around priorities and relationships. One, don't be anxious or get so excited about things that have no eternal significance. Matthew 6.34 says, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Number two, to live intentionally, to live purposely, purposefully. Take time to think about what your priorities actually are and consider how you're actually spending your time and be intentional to fill that gap. Paul reveals one of the ways that he prays for the saints. In Ephesians 1, 16 through 18, he says, do not cease giving, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul's prayer for the saints was to grow in the knowledge of Jesus and to appreciate his grace of the inheritance in Christ, resulting living life in a manner that seeks to glorify God, to seek to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gift of God through Jesus. Number three, share the truth. Colossians 4, 5 says, Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Here, outsiders are referring to unbelievers. So make the most of every opportunity. Someone once told me that cancer is a gracious killer. It was hard to understand that statement as I saw what my dad went through with the physical pain he endured. And probably all of us have a loved one that has battled cancer and have seen what the impact of that is and to see the trial and the challenge. And you sit here and say, how could somebody say that that is a gracious killer with the pain that they endure? I understand the intent of the statement, though. My dad did not die suddenly. It provided a time for him to reflect on his life, to think about eternal matters, to have meaningful conversations, and also to not allow anything to go unsaid. Uh, On October 1st, about 50 days before my dad had died, when I visited him, I had written a letter and gave it to him. And in that letter, I expressed my thankfulness for who he was as a father, uh, my love for him, and also, most importantly, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Seeking for my dad to repent and believe and understand what, what that means. Number four, for exhortations in this area around priorities and relationships, is seek to reconcile if there's areas where fractures exist in your own lives, where there's relationship fractures. I shared with a friend during a a Bible study back in early November about the letter that I I gave to my dad, which was actually a a recommendation or idea from from Jill and Whitney, which I I thought was um, a great thing. Sometimes it's, it's hard to be able to clearly express everything and in the moment and how it's going, to have it written down, to have it there, where you can look at it, reflect on it, and you know that it's, it's there and it's going, to be, it's going to be read. And he thanked me for that letter. But in December, when I was talking to that friend, he let me know that he reflected on that and encouraged him to do the same thing, that he wrote a letter to his father, and he was going to send along with his 
family Christmas card. On December 16th, I received a text from that friend that started, Funny how life works. My dad had a brain bleed tonight. Don't procrastinate. Don't let any strife remain. Don't let something go unsaid. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Then Hebrews 12.14 begins, Pursue peace with all men. So areas in life where you have strife, the Bible's clear that it commands, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The final area of his legacy that I like to talk about is making moments memorable. Dad would spend a lot of time with his kids. So part of that was the nature of working on a farm. So the family's in this together, right? But it's not just that, hey, we're working together. He would always find time to make the moments memorable, to do something memorable while working. So remember when he was, when we had the cows, he'd have to bring the cows in. It was a four-stall operation, so kind of slow. And you'd have to hook the cows up to give milk, and then you'd have maybe 10 minutes or however it was before the next ones came in. And so I'd always be out there uh, waiting to throw football or waiting to throw baseball. So between, between the cows coming through, he'd, he'd jump out and throw with me for a little bit. Uh, and that was something I greatly looked forward to. And for me, it was often the highlight of my day. There's other moments of a uh, three-wheeler ball tag in the woods at night. Uh, my dad built a a go-kart and a three-wheeler racetrack where the cow pasture used to be once we had uh, chickens, so there's a lot of time uh, <laughs> racing around that. Uh, it included a bank turn after a long straightaway. This was actually uh, a place for my, my cousin, nicknamed Quacker. He uh, broke his leg when we were, when we were racing around the track. Uh, we played traveling cornhole during my brother's graduation party, playing table-breaking games of spoons, shooting skeets, the exhortation, to reflect on Psalm 139, 16. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. The time that we have here is a gift from God. And none of us know how much of it we are allotted. Ephesians 5, 16 says that we are to make the most of every opportunity to redeem the time. For parents, don't underestimate how much kids treasure the moments with you in which they have your undivided attention. On a very practical level that hits home for me, and I think for most of us, is uh, the smartphone, the, uh, the distraction machine, as I now refer to it as sometimes. So if this is not controlled, it is a tool of disengagement. Be engaged in the moments. Each moment that we are allotted is a blessing provided by God. Are you distracted or are you engaged? A mantra I have at work, especially if I only have a, a brief amount of time with somebody, I'll say, hey, I only have 10 minutes, but you have all of me for these 10 minutes, meaning I'm zoned in. I am, I'm engaged. But sometimes, though, I think about am I engaged in other areas of my life? And I'll say we here because I think uh, it would be fair to say we, that we neglect applying this in other areas, such as in time with our spouses, in conversations with friends, while doing things with our family, while studying God's word, are you engaged? Are you distracted free? Are you, are you in the moment? Are you redeeming the time that the Lord has provided right now, right at that moment? My dad often sought to make moments memorable through different wagers. 
uh, I bet you, or I've got a dollar that says, or some of the most common expressions that would begin a, a lot of conversations. Uh, we had bets for the best solitaire score when we first got a computer. Closest to the target when you're shooting bow and arrow when I was younger. Uh, one time I bet with his two nephews over a summer who could kill the most groundhogs. That's on the Cubs versus the Reds, the Browns versus the Bengals. I bet you, I bet you, many moments were built around friendly wagers. On the day that my dad died, he told me that, or I told him that I had one final wager for him. I'd been thinking and searching scripture concerning what happens at death. I'd like to share from scripture what I learned, and then I'll share that, that final wager that I gave to him. The key passage I meditated on is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, found in Luke 16. So let me go ahead and read that. Luke 16, beginning at verse 19 through the end of the chapter. So Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tongue of the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. The parables that Jesus gives tell an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. They help to explain a truth, simple word pictures with profound spiritual lessons. My goal in talking through this parable is for you to understand the two eternal destinations and your responsibility to act on the knowledge given to you by God for your destination. My goal is for you to understand the two eternal destinations and your responsibility to act on the knowledge given to you by God for your destination. I'll cover four post-death truths from this parable. First, I want to talk about the two different destinations. Matthew 25, 46 says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
So one post-death destination is heaven. Uh, see this in verses 22 and 23 in the parable, that the first thing that Lazarus saw after his death was being taken to paradise by angels. Believers should expect the same experience. So what happens when your eyes close for the last time? Your soul will be guided to heaven by angels. There's an intermediate state that exists at the present time as we're going through where we are in, uh, in history. And at the present time, there's a place for souls in heaven, which can rightly be described as heaven. So as believers, when they die, immediately be in the presence of God in heaven. They will be, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, at home with the Lord. They will be in heaven. The souls are in a bodiless state of glory. They will face God, not as a stern judge, but as a loving father who has forgiven them. Later, though, when Jesus returns, there will be a second resurrection in which the soul will be reunited with a transformed heavenly body in the new heavens and the new earth for the final destination of redeemed humanity. So at this time, so at death, in the intermediate state, if it happened right now, we're in the presence of God. We see Jesus face to face. We are souls in a sinless state. But at at the end, when there's a new heavens and a new earth that comes for eternity, our bodies will be glorified. And our souls and bodies will reunite, but in a way with a glorified body. Glorification. Believers will be thoroughly transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ everlastingly. So how and when? will be at the last trumpet when Jesus comes. At that time, the saints will undergo a fundamental instant transformation. We shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So what will the heavenly body be like that is now your glorified body that will be reunited with your soul? Paul states that the new body in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 41, it's going to be related to the old body, as a full-grown head of grain is related to the tiny seed. So our present mortal body, it'll be recognizable, but it'll be radically changed into a spiritual body. So I think about gravestones, and there's a lot in that one dash between the years, right? The date of your birth, the date of your physical death. I believe that there's there's not enough dashes on the gravestone. I feel like for myself... I would like to see the date of my birth, the date of my death, but there's also a couple more. One, 2012, when I was spiritually reborn, born again, now a a spiritual indwelling, and then also a question mark for when is my body going to be glorified? When is the new heavens and the new earth? So a, a question mark on that day, but that's there's not a finality to this date. There's a, there's a date in the future that then goes on for eternity. The new heavens and the new earth, what will it be like? It's a tangible place. We will dwell there in our glorified bodies. It will not be completely unrecognizable. So scripture refers to it as a new heaven and a new earth. So in a sense, in some way, it will be earthly. So as an illustration to think about that, if, uh, if I were to buy a new car that was the nicest car on the market, it would be 
a lot different than my current car. But I would, it would still have an engine. It would still have four tires, however many doors. I could still recognize that this was my old car and this is a new car, that they're both cars. But it's, uh, it would seem completely transformed and different. So you think about Scripture describes the new heaven and the new earth as a new heaven and a new earth. It will be, as it says in Ephesians 1.10, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Revelation 21 describes the new capital city, the new Jerusalem. Uh, this is the city that is going to come down. Um, and there's a lot of description in Revelation 21 of what this new capital city actually looks like. Um, and according from how I read Hebrews 11.16, I believe it's already prepared, that it's, it's ready. So Hebrews 11.16 says, But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one, for he has prepared a city for them. Past tense, he has prepared a city for them. So the last things will be like the first things. So as we read the first two chapters of Scripture in Genesis, before sin comes into the earth, we see God's perfect creation. The last two chapters of Scripture, the end of Revelation, we see what it's going to be like in the eternal state. So once again, when sin is not present, it'll be a perfect place. Try to imagine life, physical and mental, without sin. A world without pain, without disease, without depression, without loneliness, without death, without mourning, without crying. Revelation 21.4 says, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The present sufferings will give away to indescribable glory. There will be rest from the toils of this life, as it says in Revelation 14.13. Death was not an original part of creation, and it will not be present in the new heaven and the new earth. God will remove any negative remnants of this previously cursed world. It will be a place where we learn, where we play, where we work, all things that existed before the fall. For all of those that have been saved through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Revelation 22.5 talks about how the saints will reign forever and ever, will reign in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus. Genesis 1.26-28 talks about how God created man to rule and to subdue the earth. We see then at the end in Revelation, there will be nations, there will be a government, there will be work, there will be diversity. We will experience the joy of loving our ethnically different neighbors as it is meant to be, as ourselves, and the bliss of endlessly multiplying friendships with brothers and sisters in Christ for eternity. We will share in Messiah's royal reign and serve his kingdom purposes. Another reference is 1 Corinthians 6, 2. I've stated many of the secondary pleasures of heaven, and I don't believe it's incorrect to look forward to these secondary pleasures. Let me give an illustration that... Uh, lately, a lot of us and families in our church body have been fighting illnesses in different ways. And friends have come up and said, hey, how can I provide for you? How can, can I give you a meal? Let me send you a meal. Let me send you a medicine or whatever it may be. So when you think of that example, if a friend gives you a meal, 
What meets your needs? Did the meal meet your need or did the friend meet your need? Both. So without your friend, there would be no meal. But even without a meal, you'd still treasure your friendship. Hence, your friend is both your higher pleasure and the source of your secondary pleasure, the meal. Likewise, God is the source of all our lesser goods so that when they satisfy us, it's truly God himself who satisfies us. And to think, in fact, if it's God who satisfies you by giving you the friend who gives you the meal in the first place. So this illustration is taken from a, a book uh, entitled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Um, I was highly recommended of, hey, if you're going to read one book outside of Scripture for a good understanding of the eternal states, uh, this is it. So Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Uh, let me also give an extended quote from this book, still on the same topic about secondary pleasures. When I speak of the multifaceted joys of the resurrected life in the new universe, some may think, but our eyes should be on the giver, not the gift. We must focus on God, not on heaven. This approach sounds spiritual, but it erroneously divorces our experience of God from life, relationships, and the world, all of which God graciously gives us. It sees the material realm and other people as God's competitors rather than as instruments that communicate his love and character. It fails to recognize that because God is the ultimate source of joy and all secondary joys emanate from him, to love secondary joys on earth can be, and in heaven always will be, to love God, their source. So to be able to do that perfectly in heaven, but to know now that because of our current darkness of our hearts, we, uh, we mess things up. We must be careful not to make idols out of God's provisions. So to think of, like at Christmas time, we give our kids gifts, and it delights us when they have joy in those gifts. But if all of a sudden they completely ignore Charity and I because they're just all about their gift, then they've uh, taken it too far, right? They've, uh, now they're appreciating the gift and not the, uh, the getting things out of, out of priority. The greatest experience of heaven will be to gaze on God's face. Revelation 22.4 says they will see his face. Our faith shall be sight. We will see God. The presence of God is the essence of heaven. Wherever we go in heaven, we will be in the immediate presence of the full glory of God. We'll experience the grace and joy of living with God forever. The best part of the eternal state is the presence of God and the Lamb who is on the throne. God's servants will worship him, will see his face with eternal, unbroken fellowship. There will be no barrier that remains between God and his people. He will dwell among us. We will engage in perfect and perpetual worship of God and the Lamb. As Steve Lawson explains, God's glory will fill and permeate the entire new heaven, not just one centralized place. Thus, wherever we go in heaven, we will be in the immediate presence of the full glory of God. Wherever we go, we will enjoy the complete manifestation of God's presence. Throughout all eternity, we will never be separated from direct, unhindered fellowship with God. Returning to the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the other potential destination of the soul upon death is hell, a place of everlasting torment. 
the rich man. In the parable itself, it doesn't express anything specific of this, this gentleman being a, a, an extremely heinous person. It doesn't talk about some evil deeds that he does. He's not shown as being particularly cruel. But the rich man opens his eyes in hell. This is a warning that hell will be full of people who never expected to be there. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In the context of this parable, right before it, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees at the time were the most respectable, seemingly upright, devout, religious people of the time. They were the ones that controlled the synagogues. They controlled the access for who could be in and out based on uh, what they saw in each other's lives. It was such a significant statement when the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20, when Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This was a huge statement because at the time, they're the epitome of what devote looks like. They're making rules that say, we so much don't want to disobey what Scripture says, what the Old Testament says, that we're going we're to put up fences so you don't even get close to the edge. But this parable provides a glimpse of not only the torment of hell, but I'll speak more about that it's not about your righteousness, right? You cannot earn your destination based on merit. That's what the Pharisees tried, and that's why Jesus was so outspoken against them, is that they had lost their heart. They had lost their love for what God's law was. They were so on the letter of the law that they are no longer serving God, but they're trying to make it their own way because it's this, this tendency to say, I've got to be able to earn it. I've got to be able to earn it in some way. Let me talk more about what this parable provides, though, for hell and going more into other areas of Scripture that describe hell. And it's not something that's easy to talk about, but yet no one speaks about hell in Scripture more than Jesus. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did in heaven, or talk about speaking of heaven. So why? Well, it's the reason that Jesus tells this parable. It is a gracious purpose. He is seeking to save people from going to this horrible destination. He is sharing because he seeks for them to repent. In verse 23, we see being in torment. In verse 24, I am in agony in this flame. Verse 28, it's a place of torment. Once again, the man who lived in splendor every day was begging for a drop of water. The Bible teaches eternal conscious torment in a place called hell as the eternal consequence of every person who dies in an unrepentant state. Let me say that again. The Bible teaches eternal conscious torment in a place called hell as the eternal consequence of every person who dies in an unrepentant state. This is the traditional view of hell. Uh, 
Christians, though more than ever, are questioning that traditional view because it's hard, right? We desire for that not to be the case. I, I'd read a book from one of my classes called The Four Views of Hell from an evangelical perspective. And I, I went into this reading, this, having this traditional view of hell, and when I wrote my book report at the end, I said, unfortunately, my view of hell is unchanged after reading the book as this is the only view that makes a convincing argument based on Scripture alone. The everlasting consequences of hell include punishment and banishment. For punishment, receive retribution for wrongs that are committed. Um, When they die, they will see God as the judge for their deeds instead of being cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. Is this just? To sin against an infinitely glorious being is an infinitely heinous offense that is worthy of an infinitely heinous punishment. Revelations 14, 9 through 11 talks about how they will fall under the wrath of God, that they will be tormented, that the pain and distress will go on everlastingly. It will be agonizing, relentless torment. Isaiah 66, 22 through 24 says that it's punitive, that it's a, it's a punishment, that there will be continual burning. Jude 13 talks about that demonic beings and unrepentant sinners are in the same fate. They're both sent into darkness. Referencing Matthew 22, 13 and 25, 30, be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So everyone will receive an eternal body. So those who are in union with Christ receive an eternal body that's fit for joy, for grace, and life with God in His presence. But those who die outside of Christ receive a body to endure eternal wrath. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 talks about the final division of all humanity, the final judgment, in which there's two groups, the sheep and the goats. The goats go to eternal fire, eternal punishment. And it is clear that the term used here is punishment. It's not a place to go for correction and pruning and then your destination changes. It is a a place for everlasting punishment. Daniel 22, 2 through 3, says that there will be a resurrection for all. But the separation is permanent. Those in hell will be in everlasting contempt. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. God will repay those who afflict Christians in this life with eternal punishment. So away from the presence of the Lord to get a language of punishment and very clearly not language of annihilation. So there's some view that a a soul and a body is in hell for so long and then it's just destroyed and there's an end to that presence. But that's, that's not what we see when we look through Scripture. Annihilationism is does not align with the Word of God. That is a, an untruth. In the final separation, we're banished, those in hell are banished from blessings of the kingdom of God and are denied access to the glories of the new earth, as talked about in Revelation 22. So the implications, why does understanding the view, the correct view of hell important? Uh, first, it's to fear him who destroys the soul and the body in hell forever and know the need for a Savior. It is not a a flippant thing to talk about spending eternity in hell. And it's not a place of joy and partying. It's a place of punishment 
and torment. The reason Jesus had, as I said before, for telling this parable is a gracious purpose. No one speaks about hell in Scripture more than Jesus, and he does it for good reasons. He is seeking to save people from going to this horrible destination. To sin against an infinitely glorious being is an infinitely heinous offense that is worthy of an infinitely heinous punishment. A third post-death truth from this parable is that once a soul goes to one destination, they will not change to the other destination. In verse 26 of the parable, it says, There's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. There are only two destinations. I, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. My dad's funeral service was a Roman Catholic Mass. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that there are three destinations and that the chasm between two of them can be crossed. Let me share the Roman Catholic Church's teaching of the destinations that happen after death. And then let us be Bereans to take it to Scripture to say what is, what is correct. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that purification may continue past death in purgatory if someone dies in a state that lacks complete righteousness. So this is why a eulogy was not allowed to be given during my dad's funeral mass, because it interfered with the purpose of the mass, because the purpose of the mass was seeking to remove any stain of sin from my dad after his death. So remember that... What's done in practice follows what the knowledge is, what the thoughts are. So what we think is what we will do, right? It's knowledge first, and then based on that knowledge is how you act. But what if, what if the thinking is wrong? How do you know? What do you base it on to know if your thinking is right? If you believe something all your life, and now it's being questioned, how do you know the source? I think, of, I think of COVID times. I mean, I could find an article that supports any view of COVID. How do you know what's true? All this conversation about relativism and, and there's no absolute truth. That's it's garbage. There is absolute truth. What we do is we can take it to the Word of God. That is the standard to measure it by. First, though, let me clearly define what I understand as the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church in this area, utilizing their own documents. So in the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, in paragraph 1030, it says, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So why, why would that be thought? So we need to take it back a step further to say, why would there be an area of purification that still needs to occur to be able to be in the presence of Christ? And that is because of the view of justification. In the Roman Catholic Church, justification is not taught as something that is declared, but it's taught as being a process. So that you become righteous. You're not declared righteous for what Christ has done. The Roman Catholic Dictionary says that justification is the process of a sinner becoming justified or made right with God. 
A key document of the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church on justification goes back to a council that occurred in 1547. Remember, 30 years earlier, 1517, Martin Luther nails the, the 95 Thesis to the, to the door. 30 years later, 1547, a council is performed. The intention of this council, as explained in their own decree, was to expound to all the faithful of Christ the true and salutary doctrine of justification. So the, the council assembled, came to be what they understood the truth to be on justification, and then put together a statement to say, here's what we believe. But not only here's what we believe, we're going to make a decree with all the statements that says, this is our belief, and you must agree to this. So if you do not agree to it, then you are deemed anathema, which means to be kicked out of the church if you go against their doctrine and their teaching. So what does anathema mean? So in their own definition, it begins with it's a solemn condemnation. So they don't desire that you never return to the church. But they say, if you go against something that is a decree, it's anathema. You are, you are out. Why is that so significant? Going back to thinking about the, the Pharisees and how they would kick people out of the synagogue. And it was believed that you had to be in the synagogue to have eternity, to have a... It was believed that the Pharisees controlled access to the synagogues or controlled access then to eternity. Paragraph 1129 of the Roman Catholic Church Catechism states, For believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. So meaning, you must be part of the Roman Catholic Church to receive the sacraments. If you are not performing the sacraments that are administered only by the Roman Catholic Church, then you are condemned to hell. The decree includes 33 canons or statements of anathemas. Uh, let me give two examples of the decrees. Canon 9 states, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Canon 24 says, If anyone says that justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those who work are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, not the cause of its increase. Let him be anathema. So to clarify this statement, the grace of justification may be increased or decreased based on merit. So how you stand in the eyes of the Lord in, this, in these statements is based on how you're doing with your fruits of adherence to the law. You're becoming more and more righteous or less and less righteous, and that ultimately impacts the state of your soul when you die to understand how long you'll be in purgatory to remove that stain. There's a great chasm between the Roman Catholic Church view on justification and what we believe. I contend that what we believe is standing on what the Bible says. The only way we can measure if what we believe is right is based on the absolute truth found in Scripture. So let's look at what Scripture says in defining justification in the epistle that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, wrote to the Galatians. Uh, you may want to open up to it if you'd like. I'm going to reference quite a few verses. So Galatians is the first epistle written by Paul. So Paul wrote this epistle shortly after his first missionary journey, which included planting churches in the Galatian region. The occurrence for the writing is that Paul received word 
that the churches in Galatia were coming under false teaching by Judaizers. So Paul had just been there. He turns to ascending church. He's giving updates of what happened on his missionary journeys. And he receives word of false teaching that's occurring in some of the area where churches were just planted. And that false teaching was occurring by Judaizers. So what were the Judaizers teaching? They were challenging, one, Paul's apostolic authority, as well as distorting the sufficiency of God's grace. They were teaching a requirement of works for salvation. Throughout the epistle, the focus is to correct the Judaizers' false teaching of the necessity of adherence to the law for salvation. Let me restate Canon 24 from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, not the cause of the increase, let him be anathema. The level of emotion that Paul has in this letter is evident. He vehemently opposes what the Judaizers have been teaching. Paul was just there, and this false teaching is now there. It goes against everything that Paul was just teaching, and he clarifies it in this epistle. In Galatians 1.9, includes, If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. The word accursed here means anathema. Remember the decree from the Council of Trent. How many anathema statements were there? 33. In Scripture, this word is not used lightly. Its definition is it means to devote someone to destruction and eternal hell. You know how many times the word appears in the entirety of the New Testament? Two times. In this instance, anathema is against those preaching a different gospel. And the other usage of the word is in 1 Corinthians 16.22, when it's pronounced against those who do not love God. Let them be anathema. In Galatians 2.16, I'll quote, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Adding works as a requirement to faith is the different gospel that Paul is writing against in his epistle. Five verses later, in Galatians, still in Galatians 2, verse 21, Paul states, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The statement by Paul is that if there's another way to salvation apart from faith in the finished work of Christ, then Christ died needlessly. I heard a friend talking once to somebody, and he asked the question about what do you, what do you need to have assurance of eternity with God in heaven? And it went through a, a whole list of if my good works are, outweigh my bad works, if I can, I'm going to be earning it through what I'm doing. And my friend said, if all you need to do to get to heaven is help old ladies cross the street, then why did Christ come? Paul's writing here takes it even further. If you can earn salvation in some way by works that you're doing, then Christ died needlessly. 
Galatians 3.11 says, No one is justified by the law before God. The law demands perfection, which no one is able to achieve. So if no one can achieve it, why the law? You see the answer in Galatians 3.24. Paul states the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. We see several times through this letter that the instrument of justification is faith, not works. In Luke 23, 43, when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today. There's no works that he earned. He believed, and his belief is how he was justified. There was no period of an eternal place or a place that's temporary there to remove stain. Today you will be with me in paradise. The word of God is clear. To provide what I believe is a biblical definition, um, this is from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology on Justification. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Let me say that one more time. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness, Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. The fourth death, the fourth post-death truth that is shown in this parable, the last one I'll cover, is that man has everything he needs to believe. Man has the ability and the responsibility. Verse 29 of this parable, Abraham said to the rich man, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In verse 31, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Let them read with understanding what it says in the Old Testament, which is what they had in their possession at that time. The power is in the Word of God. Scripture is clear. Scripture is sufficient. Man is not without a lack of evidence. God's goodness, his grand design is evident in creation. It's evident in the the birth of a baby. The reality of God is on their conscience. That guilt that's embedded in each person of knowing what is wrong. Unbelief is not a knowledge problem. It is a moral problem. People choose to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The rich man was in hell forever, not because he lacked information, but because he rebelled against his need for a Savior. It's a plea for all who hear to urgently submit to Christ and God's revelation to us through his word. Abraham said in verse 31, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. How many miraculous signs did Jesus perform while he walked the earth? 
The last verse of the Gospel of John, John 21, 25 says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So even though Jesus performed countless miracles, even though he performed miracles in the presence of the Pharisees, the Pharisees would challenge Jesus. What would they challenge him? They'd say, give us a sign. Give us an additional sign. Prove who you are. Prove that you are the Messiah. How did Jesus respond? He would give them a sign. He would give them a sign from Scripture. He would say, you have the sign from the prophet Jonah, meaning you have the truth revealed in Scripture, including Jesus pointing to the account of Jonah and the fish. This is a metaphor for his future crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. You have the Old Testament. You have the prophecies that talk about who I am. It's clear. Why are you in unbelief? In John 20, 27 through 29, this is the account of of Thomas with his unbelief. And now he sees the resurrected Jesus. After saying, hey, if I can be there and put my hand through his side and through his fingers, then I'll believe. And now this is the account where that occurs. So in John 20, 27, it says, Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. What does Scripture say after this? Let me continue especially emphasizing verse 31, but starting with verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Shortly after this parable, Jesus' friend Lazarus died. Jesus had raised him from the dead. And how did the Pharisees respond? Of seeing this very well-known person in the community is now walking around after he was in a tomb. Their response was in uh, John 12, 10, when the Pharisees Pharisees says, but the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. The reality of heaven and the torment of hell should motivate all persons to be certain of their relationship to Jesus Christ. Now is the time to seal our eternity. When we die, it's too late. The chasm cannot be crossed. So back to that final wager with my dad on the day that he died. I told him that I had one final wager. I told him if what I said is wrong, he loses nothing. But if what I said was true and he goes all in, The eternal inheritance surpasses anything he has gained during his earthly life. The truth that I shared is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd like to share this with you also. There's four parts. First, the first four words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. God created all things. Two, there's bad news. The fall. The first sin of man occurs with Adam and Eve. All of us are created in the image of God, but that image is marred because of sin. So mankind is born in separation from God, in enmity to God. That is our default position, a path of rebellion. 
A life characterized with many good deeds and kind acts do not close the gap, no matter how many. We are unable to earn favor or merit or grow in justification. Why? Because we have transgressed his standard for holiness. What is his standard for holiness? Is perfection. One lie, one moment of anger, using God's name in vain, an idol in life, not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are a transgressor. Three, there is good news. God did not leave us in our sinful state without a cure. There is a remedy for our sin problem. God has made a way for sinners such as you and I to be reconciled to him. Jesus humbled himself to take on flesh and become man, born in a manger, lived a perfect life that we could not live, conquered sin. He was the Passover lamb, a sacrifice. At the cross is where justice and mercy meet. The justice is that Jesus bore the wrath for sin. It was poured out upon him. There were three hours of darkness as that wrath was poured out. There's mercy because he bore that wrath in the place of those who put their faith in him. We celebrate the resurrection because it bears proof that the payment was accepted. Four, what must we do? Where you will reside for eternity hangs in the balance of your response to the question, who is Jesus and who is he to you? The great exchange that is available exchanges our sinfulness with the righteousness of Christ. But what must you do? That's the right question. It's the same question that the crowd asked Peter at Pentecost. What must we do to be saved? His response was to repent and believe. So to clarify, what does that mean? What does it mean to repent and believe? If that's what I must do to be saved, what does it mean? Believe means to have head knowledge, knowing that Jesus is eternally God, fully man, fully God, who is the Savior. But just knowing that is not enough. Scripture says even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe that Jesus is God, and they shudder. Believe also means to have faith or an allegiance to Jesus. So if you're in a plane that's going down and you see a parachute and have the head knowledge to know that a parachute will save you, that's, it doesn't do anything. You've only gone so far. It only matters if you, take, if you put the parachute on and you jump. It only matters if you go all in. Repent is a turning to turn from sin, to turn to God, a turning of the heart, and it's manifested visibly in action. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The final exhortation. As I said in the prayer at the beginning, at the graveside is where all the teaching of the Bible becomes real. The Bible proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not in control. Life can change in an instant. Whether it be a car accident, a heart attack, a brain bleed, an aneurysm, a terminal disease, tomorrow is not promised to anyone, regardless of age. If you die today, are you ready for where you will spend eternity? Are you certain where you will be for eternity? If you don't have an allegiance to Christ, your eternal destiny is that of the rich man in the parable. Eternal torment and banishment. If you're not certain that your eternal destiny is to see his face and be in his presence, come talk to me 
talk to another believer. Don't delay. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Does this message from today, from God's Word, challenge you? Good. I hope it challenges you. But it's only significant and meaningful if it changes you. We're going to the truth of God's Word, of how we desire to mimic the Master, and most importantly for those that are outside of Christ, that don't know if they have a saving faith, that, that say, hey, hopefully my good works outweigh my, outweigh my bad works. That is not what God's Word says to us. His revelation is clear. Salvation is through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Let me close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. You have provided a gift and a way to be reconciled to you, one that we could never do on our own. But your plan is perfect, and your ways are so much higher than our ways. We see the truth in your word about, about hell, and it's terrifying and saddening. And at times, we, we wish that would not be the case. But what we wish there is something different than what your perfect plan is. It's ultimately not trusting. Uh, it's not trusting you. But Lord, what can we do? Lord, we pray that your truth is shared. We pray that we walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that is upon us. And we pray for those that are standing outside of your kingdom, that their minds would be open, especially to, to things they may have believed all their lives, but instead to come to your word and say, what does your word to us reveal? To be Bereans, to come there on your own. And Lord, we, uh, we celebrate the truth. We pray for those that are lost that we will see.